Hello, I'm Steve Hassan, and welcome to the Influence Continuum. I'm so glad to have Dave Troy with me, tech entrepreneur, disinformation researcher, all-round genius, in my book anyway, about trying to put together a map that makes sense for everything that is happening right now in overwhelming speed uh, in America, but also uh, globally. And uh, I just want to say, Dave, you, I think, if I remember correctly, saw my TEDx Beacon Street on Is Technology Controlling Your Mind? Mm-hmm. You reached out to John Werner. You gladly introduced me. You invited me to come to TEDx uh, Mid-Atlantic. You're the mm-hmm. curator there. Yep. And then COVID hit. Yeah, <laughs> but. Everything has been thrown into disarray since then. Been thrown yeah. into disarray, but we connected and we've been on this, you know, journey together because mm-hmm. you wanted to understand more about cults yeah. and uh, and where I was lacking. I introduced you to Joe Zim Hart, who knows a lot mm-hmm. about I am and lots mm-hmm. of the occultist kinds of things. And so we're just doing citizenry activism. Mm-hmm. Try to help. Doing what we can to try to keep the doors glued on democracy. (laughs) Yes, yes. And uh, as I wrote in Cult of Trump, the Trump phenomenon was growing for at least 50 years, if not 60, post, you know, World War II and Cold War with Russia. And as there was an arms race with nuclear weapons, there was also an arms race with mind control and hypnosis. You know, so, and that's where I entered the picture because of my recruitment into a front group of the Moonies that turned out to be a KCIA, CIA operation that's still operating right now. And we're there at January 6th. And Trump spoke for Mrs. Moon's entity and supposedly will speak again. So the Moonies are very much in play, as frustrated as I am that I was deprogrammed 45 years ago. Hmm. But I just feel like you're one of the unique people who have done, really done the homework, done the due diligence, and frankly has the courage to speak truth to power and to call out bad actors for their bad acting. So that's my intro, (laughs) Dave. So seriously, there's so much going on right now. Shall we start with the importance? I still think it's important for people to watch Dismantling QAnon on the TEDx Mid-Atlantic platform. It's 90 minutes, but I think it really, I think we got it right. Mm-hmm. The QAnon was a psyop and it acts like a cult, even though it's online. And we, you know, in, in the past, there's somebody in Dallas that was saying JFK's coming back or RFK's coming back. And and people are camping out waiting for a dead person to show up again, which shows the insanity. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And the, the program that we put together, I guess it was in October of 2020, uh, you know, was really a result of, you know, all of our many, many open source researchers digging into what was going on with QAnon and, you know, a lot of the kind of cult behavior that we were finding underneath the surface as well as connections into the oil and gas industry. And, you know, uh, you know, folks should definitely check that out. But I think that the thing that, you know, Steve really, you know, alluded to a minute ago is that, you know, this, this figuring out what's going on right now requires a very broad multidisciplinary kind of approach, because you really have to have a, be able to assemble a comprehensive understanding of, you know, history, of politics, of uh, sociology, social science, religion, world history, you know, just overall. And, and what you find, you know, like so many of us, you know, I know, um, you know, when I was initially in touch with Steve, we were starting to assemble kind of a small network of people that seemed to be getting a, got a lot of the clues together. And what you find when you study something like disinformation is that there's these artifacts that end up online. So you see a video or something, you go, well, okay, you know, what is this? Where did it come from? Who produced it? Who seems to have paid for it? Can you figure that out? What was their motive? You know, what, what is the background of the people involved? Where, what was their prior, you know, affiliation? 
And when you start to assemble all of those artifacts, what you start to see is a network of people. And what you find, generally speaking, is that this network of disinformation actors is pretty persistent over time. It tends to, um, you know, kind of keep existing across decades, uh, different characters come and go. But, you know, like you were saying, Steve, with the Moonies and whatnot, you know, the Moonies have their network of people that have been, you know, involved in pushing various agendas. So you have organs like the Washington Times or OAN, which was an affiliate, came out of, of, of the Washington Times as kind of an affiliated yeah. news network. And so, you know, these, these networks of people push these kinds of narratives over time. And, and so then you have to figure, okay, well, what historical forces do these networks plug into? Who, who you know, cui bono, who benefits from this? And then you can start to get a sense of like what historical network of protagonists um, and antagonists these different, you know, actors may belong to. And then you start to have to kind of doing the fairly scientifically rigorous work of of taking a hypothesis and saying, I think that these people are aligned with these folks and in line with, you know, these monetary interests and these economic, you know, patterns and whatnot. And then you basically have to look for any evidence that you can find that would disprove your hypothesis. Now that doesn't mean that your hypothesis is right just because you can't find evidence. Cause a lot of times there's people working pretty hard to obfuscate things and hide evidence and that kind of thing. But it does tend to, you know, over time help to validate the idea that maybe you're not wrong. And then once you've got kind of a sense of like what might be true, then you can start to piece together what you, what you think is the theory of the case, you know, just the same way that a, you know, an investigator would go try to figure out what they thought would happen in a case where they, what they thought happened in a case where they don't have complete information, you start to piece together a theory of the case. And then from there, you know, that may lead you into, you know, uh, writing a, an article or a book or, you know, putting together a documentary or a podcast or whatever that allows you to then talk about that theory, disclaiming it as you must as being incomplete. But that then in turn may help to elicit additional information or defectors from the networks that would tend to help you to, you know, underscore your initial theory of the case and then ultimately maybe prove it. Yep. And then once you've got enough evidence to prove it, then you can put together, you know, really hard hitting journalism and and documentaries and whatever else that, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, allow you to make a case about something. But that's, that's the hard work of history. Yeah. The who, what, when, where, why. Right. And, uh, and I I just want to comment when I wrote the cult of Trump in 2019 and I did chapter seven on who are the puppeteers and I put Putin Number one, I talked about the family, the group that Jeffrey Charlotte wrote two best-selling books about and did a Netflix series. Talked about Opus Dei, talked about the Jewish right, the NRA, the white nationalists. So I went through a whole list. I regret that I didn't talk about Ann Nelson's work, Shadow Network, on the Council of National Policy, Turns out my former cult was involved from the beginning of that. Right. And the first editor of the Washington Times was a CNP uh, devotee as well. Mm-hmm. And then there were other cults like uh, Falun Gong that did the Epoch Times, was doing mm-hmm. a huge amount of disinformation stuff. But anyway, I'm, I'm pleased that at least the core thesis, and I have, of course, had lawyers vet my book before Simon and Schuster sure, would yeah. publish it. But everything we've learned since is just built on that and expanded. Yeah, it's, a, it's accretive. The knowledge that we've gained has contributed to the picture, but there hasn't been a lot that subtracts from the picture that, say, like you or Ann Nelson or me, you know, have, have fundamentally assembled. It's, we're, we're learning much more detail and, and, right. and just how correct we were, but, you know, we're right. not finding stuff that disproves it. Right. Oh, I left out libertarianism yeah. in in the chapter seven, which figures very strongly yeah. uh, too. So, you know, we're recording this now, and we're still in the midst of COVID and and new variants popping up, mm-hmm. and and federal governments not uh, not abolishing the debt ceiling. So every few months is another crisis that can be manipulated, rise of crypto, yep. 
which you and I have talked about. And it always struck me as kind of like a multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme type of deal. It just didn't make any sense that there was substance to crypto. But then when you were explaining, oh, they want to subvert the dollar yeah. und undo America's clout and, um, you know, basically destroy government, get rid of government regulations so they can pollute and do more oil and undermine climate change mm -hmm. legislation. And these themes are not new. You know, they've been go going right. on for a long time. You know? So I'm going to give, I'm going to pass the ball to you <laughs> at the 20 yard line. Take us down field to the five yard line or wherever sure. closer so that our listeners can, and, and I should say you have a great Medium page for those people who have access to Medium where you do important summaries as new Yeah, I've been doing kind of weekly situation reports, I've been calling them yeah. just to kind of summarize the signals that I'm getting in. Yeah, and I, I follow you, of course, on Twitter and, uh, and social media. So I'm passing the ball to you, my friend. Please pontificate on what you think people most need to to know. Well, I, I think, you know, one of the most bewildering things about this moment is that there seems to be just all of this crazy stuff happening and there isn't necessarily a good sense of why all the time. You know, we, we invest in the United States, certainly a lot of energy into the sort of conflicts between Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, how crazy the Republicans seem to have gotten and, you know, radicalized. And of course they feel the same way about the Democrats and, um, you know, it's it seems almost totally counterproductive and intractable. And so what I've been trying to do, uh, you know, in conjunction with other researchers and writers and thinkers is to look at this from a much more big picture perspective and really zoom out, you know, at a much broader, you know, planetary view almost in order to understand. And this. I just want to interrupt and say you're a network expert. So that would be make mm -hmm. sense that you'd want to see. Yeah. The, uh, the bigger pictures. Exactly. So yeah, for, you know, about the last uh, 12 years or so, I've been mapping out networks of people in terms of understanding their connections between them and how networks tend to compete with one another and, you know, persist over time and, and how networks behave. We tend to think a lot about humans as, you know, especially in the United States as, as being individuals. We're very into individualism and the idea of, of individual agency and free will and we, we are also very susceptible to the idea of American exceptionalism, and that has rendered us pretty vulnerable to a lot of kind of mind control techniques, reflexive control, things, you know, that people in other societies know very well and that we are just as vulnerable to those things. So when you start to look at this very broad networked perspective, you, you see things a bit differently. And one of the big aha moments of many that I've had throughout studying all of this was looking into an incident that occurred in 1933. So for those of you, you know, that are familiar with American history, and even if you're not that up on it, uh, in 1933, of course, the world was experiencing the Great Depression. And uh, in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt was elected. He came in on March 4th, 1933, uh, which is when the inauguration day used to be back then. And, uh, you know, he promptly started talking about, you know, the New Deal and his package of programs that he had proposed uh, with his cabinet to revitalize the American economy. And of course, this was going to require a massive amount of spending. And, you know, the, the issue really was a quite practical one where, where were they going to get all this money? Because at that time, the United States was using the gold standard. The idea being that there was a big pile of gold that existed, you know, at Fort Knox and New York and different places where we hold gold. And that if you wanted to, you could take your dollars and convert them into gold at some kind of a fixed rate. And uh, basically, uh, in order to make this program work, Roosevelt said, look, you know, we're going to have to not use that, you know, basically suspend the convertibility of dollars into gold. And we're going to have to, you know, make a lot more dollars than we have gold. So what was happening at that time was that, you know, a lot of people felt that that was going to lead to a lot of inflation, um, particularly wealthy industrialists. So you had, you know, big companies like Dow Chemical and JP Morgan Bank, Remington Firearms and, uh, you know, Sunoco uh, and, you know, really big names in, in American, you know, industrial history. So, you know, Mellon and 
whole list of them. Um, and, and they were working through a group, a couple of different groups, but the two main groups that you could say that they were associated with was the National Association of Manufacturers and the American Legion, which was a veterans group um, that was basically a union busting group. Um, they, mm-hmm. you know, figured that if they could get people into this group and talk about how evil unions were, then maybe they wouldn't start unions at these big mm-hmm. companies. So those were kind of the two big groups that opposed the New Deal. And what they did was in late, uh, mid to late 1933, they recruited a general by the name of Smedley Butler. Uh, Smedley Butler was a five-star general, um, had been decorated during World War I, uh, very well respected amongst uh, the World War I veteran community. Because remember, we're talking about World War I here, not World War II, because that hadn't happened yet. Um, so you had all these veterans that they thought that they could use to basically take over Washington, D.C., and so they, they start telling Smedley Butler, like, hey, look, we want you to lead this rebellion against the government in Washington, D.C. We want to either capture or kill Franklin Delano Roosevelt and go back onto the gold standard. And, you know, we can claim that, like, you know, FDR was in, you know, uh, poor health and, you know, we, we needed to put in the secretary of general affairs that could uh, manage things and, and get the country on the right track again. And so uh, Butler, you know, thought this was sort of strange. And he himself had kind of a strained relationship with capitalism and wasn't totally really down with this. But he was curious enough about what the hell they were talking about to hear them out and basically get a lot of information from them uh, such that he could then turn them into Congress. And that's exactly what he did. He turned them into Congress uh, in late 1933. And Congress was pretty alarmed and said, gee, you know, we uh, would like to know more about this. Uh, You know, who's trying to overthrow the government again? Oh, you mean all the the biggest, you know, companies and rich people? Okay. All right. Yeah. So they held hearings and they had Butler come in as well as this uh, bond salesman guy named Gerald McGuire, who was involved. And Congress reached the conclusion that, in fact, Butler was telling the truth and that there was this plot to, you know, capture and kill Franklin Delano Roosevelt over the gold standard. And, you know, I thought to myself, gosh, you know, this incident sounds so much like January 6th. I wonder, you know, what the parallel connections are here, because it seems almost too, you know, uh, similar to not be at least, you know, rhyming in some way. So if you start to look at who these people actually were, uh, and just the pattern of how that went down, you know, these, these National Association of Manufacturers folks turn out to be the same network of people that went on later to be involved with the World Anti-Communist, which is the milieu where the movies oh, yeah. came out of. Same, same crew. Yeah. And, and for those that don't know, you know, right after World War II, there was a huge concern that, you know, communism was going to eat the world and that Russian communism and Chinese communism was going to spread you know, throughout the world and that Marxism, you know, there was basically a concern that Marxism was correct, that, you know, eventually, you know, the proletariat was always going to revolt and you're going to end up with these kind of popular uprisings. And so they were wanted to do what they could to, you know, interfere with that. And they really wackle the World Anti-Communist League and these other anti-communist outfits like the John Birch Society, which formed a little later, uh, really were super paranoid about communism. And let me be really clear, you know, there's nothing to defend 20th century communism in Russia or China. You know, these are awful authoritarian, totalitarian systems that led to millions and millions of people dead. But likewise, the counter reaction to it um, was nearly as extreme, if not more extreme in some cases, and, you know, was the basis for the interventions in Korea and Vietnam and Central America and all of that. So, at any rate, uh, the same network that tried to overthrow the government in 1933, you know, went on to be this, the network of people that was super concerned about communism and, and all of that, you know, post-World War II, and then formed the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society, in turn, was very, you know, instrumental, all the same people, the same network of people was who formed the Council for National Policy in 1981. And wasn't the Koch part of the Koch network, part yeah. of the founders of the John Birch Society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Fred Koch, which is, you know, Charles Koch's father and Charles and David Koch's father, uh, you know, was, um, he was doing petroleum operations in, in Europe and in, and in Russia and was 
very unpleased with, you know, the, the concept of communism and how that had affected his bottom line and didn't want to have assets nationalized and that kind of thing. So, you know, he was uh, part of the foundation of uh, the John Birch Society. And, um, you know, then uh, Charles and David Koch were pretty instrumental in defining American libertarianism in the early 1980s. So David Koch actually ran for president in 1980. And what they, what they realized, and you know, this is kind of how we got here is, in 1964, the John Birch Society was heavily behind Barry Goldwater. Now, Barry Goldwater, you know, sort of gave off this air of being like this sort of homespun cowboy guy from Arizona. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what they realized was that that agenda that they had, which was, you know, very xenophobic and very extreme and very anti-communist. Um, and oh, by the way, all very pro-gold standard all along. The American public just wasn't really buying what what. Uh, Goldwater had to sell, you know, while the, the race seemed competitive while it was going on, you know, Goldwater had faced a drubbing in 1964. And, um, you know, uh, Johnson obviously went on to become president, really, you know, spanked him pretty hard. Um, and so they, they sort of thought, well, you know, maybe Goldwater was sort of an exception. That was a weird race. He had some issues with his candidacy and I believe his vice president candidate. And then in 1980, David Koch ran uh, with basically the same kind of platform, you know, and he also failed to get traction. And so what they realized, and this is outlined really well in the book called Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean and also in uh, uh, Jane Mayer's book, uh, Dark Money, you know. Both excellent books. Yeah, and really instructive for helping to understand. If you want to just sort of have a stack of books to read, I would say Steve's Cult of Trump, Democracy in Chains, Jane Mayer's um, Dark Money, uh, and Nelson's Shadow Network. Uh, are, are really good starting points. And there's others too, but those are all good starting mm -hmm. points. And so, um, you know, they realized that what they needed to do was to embark on this series of what Nancy McLean describes as uh, interrelated plays, where basically you would go and, you know, put together some kind of a policy that seems sort of sensible at the time to a lot of people because they weren't really thinking about where it was coming from. They were just like, oh, I guess that makes sense. Like take, for example, like, school vouchers, you know, it sort of sounds sensible, like, well, maybe, you know, if I don't want to send my kid to a public school because of whatever the circumstances are, I'll take that same money that would otherwise have gone to the, the uh, you know, public school child and, and spend it with a private school. That seems fair, right? But unless you mm -hmm. start thinking about that systemically and, and how that would affect public education, if everybody did it, um, from a universalist kind of standpoint, uh, you know, you may not realize just kind of what agenda you've signed on to with that. And so they did a whole series of these kind of common sense, well, wouldn't it make sense if we just did this? And, and crypto is sort of the latest one of those, if you want to put it into that long succession, you know. Can I, can I just bring you back for one second to something that I think is important, which is in the 60s, etc., Yes, the anti-communism was huge, but I think they realized we can work with Christians and specifically Christian dominionists sure. and, and nationalists in the group like the family right. didn't care if they were working with Democrats or Republicans. Yeah. They just wanted authoritarians because they use the communism is Satan rap and we're doing work of God. Right. And so they framed it as an all or nothing God versus Satan thing. Mm -hmm. And I even read some books that were published in the 60s that explicitly, like there's one called The Master Plan of Evangelism that said, the communists use brainwashing. We need to brainwash people for Jesus. Right. Like they literally put it in writing. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what connects with the Christian right groups and the prosperity ministers. So, Please continue, but I just wanted to add the religious right is a really critical driver for how they have bodies who are spiritual warriors against yeah, Satan. No, for sure. And and what I think you accurately described there, Steve, is the idea that you know groups in general, of which cults and religious organizations fall into that category, are interesting weaponizable units of. Uh, information warfare of cultural warfare. And so it, you know, almost doesn't matter, you know, what these groups believe from a dogma perspective. It's more about the social cohesion that comes from, uh, you know, they're uh, being pulled into this milieu. So, you know, mm -hmm. for example, you know, while on the one hand, you know, you have the sort of 
I would say Christian, Protestant, you know, some of them are dominionist uh, groups that, you know, sort of ostensibly seem like that they're part of normal Christianity. If you actually get down into what their, you know, belief systems are, it diverges quite a bit from what you might consider to be traditional Christian dogma. What what normal conservative, you know, Christians right. say was Jesus's teaching versus I need power and money right. for God, right. you know, which is the opposite of what Jesus taught. And that's that's why there's such a divergence between sort of what people right. perceive as Christian behavior and what most, I would say, you know, sort of academic readers of Christianity would, would discern to be the teachings of Jesus is not really what you find represented in a lot of Christian religious uh, groups at this point, in the United States in particular. Um, and that's obviously not true of all of them. There's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people that are very, you know, I think Christian and and, and are so in, in the truest sense of the term. But um, at any rate, you know, you you look at a group like QAnon, which uh, the beliefs make no sense. I mean, from a rationality kind of standpoint, they're you know talking about you know Satan worshippers and people drinking blood and adrenochrome and all of this. And of course, that taps into a lot of ancient. Uh, mythology, you know, like the protocols of the elders of Zion and things before blood libel myth and things before that. But point being that um, it almost doesn't matter how you weaponize a group. Um, it's the fact that they're weaponized that they, makes them useful and allows them to be deployed in these kind of uh, us versus them religious, stand, you know, group standoffs ultimately. So, yeah. you know, that's what the whole communist thing is about. And you see it now where there's a very strong attempt to tie, you know, like the uh, United States Democratic Party to Communist Party in China and to, and to call people communists. And you kind of go, wait a minute, what is this, like 1953? You know, why are people, you know, throwing the, the communism word around so much? And it's this attempt to revive this um, longstanding rivalry between, you know, the good guy, Christian, us, and the evil communist Satan link them, basically. Right. Exactly. And I just want to comment that this is what I forgot to say earlier when I was going through my Chapter 7 list. One of the most significant groups, it's actually a network of groups, is something called New Apostolic Reformation, which has millions of followers in the U.S. and hundreds of millions around the world. And these, this is a new form of Christianity, and I'm using air quotes where the person says, and it could be a woman or a man, I'm a prophet of God or I'm an apostle. I get direct revelations. And if you cling to me, I will protect you from evil spirits and satanic elements. And we can speak in tongues and I can cast out demons if you get possessed and I can do faith healings. And these people have literally been told they're warriors for God. Yeah. And so they do a lot of politics. And of course, when Trump came in, he took one more level of protection saying, you know, religion should stay out of politics. That that went out the window. So they huh. had full green light. And there are millions of people who truly believe they're in a war against Satan and Biden is satanic. And But that's what I believed as a Mooney. Moon specifically sure. said... Democracy was satanic. We need to infiltrate the government. Right. Yeah. No. And I mean, that's how these groups are used. And that's, you know, to me, as somebody who, you know, was trained in history and technology and, you know, relatively familiar with, I would say, generic kind of, you know, U.S. history and world history. Once you start diving into this realm, you really start to get into the, to the, the world in which uh, intelligence services um, operate, which is, you know, how does the world really work? And it's all about how do you mobilize power and how do you get, you know, groups of people to do things? Because at the end of the day, if you think about what a democracy actually is, a representative democracy like the United States in particular, you know, which is not a parliamentary democracy. So it's very much the, the whole first past the post system makes for a very manipulable kind of landscape where, you know, you are able to achieve very substantially different outcomes by manipulating maybe a 3% band of people in the middle of the population. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, uh, you know, you have the situation where it, it's very, very manipulable. And, you know, it, all you really need to do is to figure out how to get a handle 
on a large enough chunk of people and then start yanking them in a particular direction. And you can get different outcomes depending on what your intentions are. And so if you have a lot of money, like let's say you're the oil industry and you have discovered this, you know, font of almost endless money that just flows all the time. And you can take a portion of that and spend it on influence, both in terms of capture of the government and purchasing, you know, regulators basically who otherwise are going to make your life difficult. If you can keep them at bay, if you can keep the population at bay to make sure that the population doesn't start calling for new regulations. Uh, if you can uh, arrange for subsidies, uh, which, you know, many times the oil industry has been very successful at doing and saying, you know, we need, we need to, to partner with government in order to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And so they managed to get what amount to government subsidies in order to pursue their agenda. Yeah, that's outrageous. Yeah. And, and the way, and this time scale that the, that the oil industry thinks on is, you know, decades, they're thinking about, you know, this is like a, as an annuity as this like cash flow kind of asset that's going to continue on for decades and decades. So, you know, their incentives to, uh, you know, really arrange the system for maximum possible advantage up to and including societal manipulation are extremely high. And so there's a, there's a very good podcast that folks might want to listen to on that particular topic that I've been diving into called Drilled by Amy Westervelt um, that really gets into the details of uh, you know, the oil industry and its use of influence um, over the last hundred and some years. And that's really what's going on. That's kind of the, the whole ballgame right there is that uh, the oil industry knows that, uh, you know, its days are, are numbered because, you know, if we continue to do what we're doing, we're going to turn this place into Venus. Right. Very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And uh, so they know they kind of, that p people generally want them to stop doing this, but they can't stop because they've got so much capital uh, deployed at, at, you know, these problems. The amount of investments that they're making in, you know, renewable energy are minuscule compared to what is going on in, in terms of preserving business as usual. Yep. So this is basically an industry that has become sentient by way of its co-option of people. Yeah. And it is trying really hard not to be killed. But if we don't kill it, we will die. So it's kill or be killed for this industry. And I can't help but say, as the tobacco industry knew for decades that it was causing cancer and killing people, mm -hmm. they were putting out deliberate disinformation, hiring so-called experts to say, mm -hmm. well, the science Creased is out. Yeah. And we've known for 30 plus years that we are destroying our planet's resources to sustain life, that yep. there's so much microplastics and plastics is made from the petroleum industry. A lot of people mm -hmm. don't realize that this is another, you know, fundraiser. And so therefore they, they want to keep stirring up doubts that really we need to change policy and we need to do it immediately. Yep. Yeah. Drastically. And the, the hypothesis that I have at the moment, which I haven't found anything to refute yet is the idea that, um, you know, in order for us to really mount a credible uh, challenge to the oil and gas industry, we need to invest heavily, like a moonshot, you know, Manhattan Project style effort, probably across a couple of countries or a coalition of countries in developing real workable alternative energy solutions. And the only way that we can afford to pay for that, just like in 1933, is with fiat currency, with money that the government allocates specifically for this purpose. And the one way you can keep from doing that is to wage a war about the gold standard, which is exactly what crypto maps onto and what is serving as a proxy for the gold standard of 1933 today. So if you want to prevent for, uh, us from ever getting out from underneath the oil and gas industry, there's maybe no more effective way to do it than to start uh, you know, trying to rally for, for cryptocurrencies. So um, it always struck me as a multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme idea that you can make a fortune if you enough people can buy in, and uh, but it, it's it, all that and more. <laughs> it's all that and more. Yeah. So because um, you know there are a lot of people who are now taking money. Actors, I saw. I think I saw Matt Damon Matt on Damon, CNN, yeah. CNN going. 
the Wright brothers were courageous to fly, yeah. and yeah. astronauts are courageous, so crypto.com Right, or I mean, if you were a celebrity Please. and somebody came to you and offered you a million dollars or something to do an ad, you know, a lot of celebrities would do that, especially if they're not thinking about what this stuff actually is. One idea that I've kind of been batting around is to get a bunch of celebrities together against cryptocurrency and to do it for free because it's the right thing to do. Um, right. So we'll see if that comes to And pass. that comes back to yeah. morality, you know, the golden yeah. rule. Don't do to others what you don't want done to, but to you. You know, to, to, to temporarily defend Matt Damon, which yes. I never thought I would need to do in my life. Okay. Uh, you know, I doubt he has any idea about what's going on. I'm I don't sure. think he understands the severity of the situation or what his role in it is, you know? I feel like if I could take Matt aside, buy him a beer, be like, Matt, listen, you don't want to do this. Here's why. Maybe he'd listen. And that's why I think we need to kind of mount a more public awareness kind of campaign about what this actually is. Because let's look at where this is leading. You know, uh, I don't know when you'll hear this. You know, we're recording this in December. But, you know, at some point, it looks like, you know, Putin is going to make a play for Ukraine. We've got tensions building in uh, Taiwan with China. Uh, there's weird stuff that Putin wants to do in Bosnia with Serbs. There's things going on in the Baltic states uh, with with Putin. And all of this boils down to him wanting to get access to, you know, unfettered um, Arctic oil and to be able to get access to that and, and to sell that to the rest of the world and to, and to partner with China um, and really create this sort of Sino-Russo-Eurasian uh, alliance um, around, you know, reorienting ge geopolitics away from NATO, away from the EU and all of that. And, you know, he also wants to sell gas into Germany via Nord Stream 2. So, you know, it's, it's all about this petrochemical kind of uh, conflict. And, um, you know, I, I think if people understood that, you know, stuff like crypto was actually playing into what amounts to a buildup to World War III, they might be a little bit more, I don't know, thoughtful about it and a little less nonchalant. <laughs> you know, yeah. but we haven't gotten that message out there yet. You know? Yeah. So what about the Middle Eastern oil countries? Aren't, aren't they in on the wanting to delay climate change yeah. legislation? Yeah, that's not a, you know an area that I'm sufficiently expert on to speak about in great detail. But I can say that, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, you know, Qatar has been doing things like converting a lot of its uh, gas holdings into like cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. That's something that people don't necessarily think about right now is that cryptocurrency is actually, assuming that it, it works out. And again, you know, think about what the stakes are if it doesn't work out and why some countries are really, really intent on having it work out is that they're able to convert their energy holdings that they have right now, which let's suppose that like the price of natural gas or the price of, you know, other petroleum products goes way down in the future. They're trying to lock in their, their, their gains right now by converting, um, you know, these energy sources directly into cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. um, and then preserving that asset for later. They hope they think maybe, but isn't it true also that like criminals and terrorists love cryptocurrency because it can help fund bad behavior. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of the go-to line that I think the public has probably most embraced. And I think that's correct, generally speaking, but it's also true that, you know, there are legitimate case, you know, use cases for various kinds of cryptocurrencies. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's the percentage of criminal activity on say, like the Bitcoin network is, you know, relatively on par with the percentage of criminal activity in, in say, like the rest of the financial system. It's not, it's not like it's all criminal stuff all the time, all money laundering, but there is a lot of that. And there's a lot of misconceptions too about the idea that it's completely opaque and that you have no idea what's going on. There are some cryptocurrencies, like there's one called Monero, which is specifically focused on privacy, but Bitcoin itself is actually reasonably transparent in terms of uh, you know who's getting what the trick is though because it is programmable it's very easy to like obfuscate stuff by way of like splitting a transaction into a thousand other smaller transactions and then regrouping those into hmm. you know other batches which then it's so it's just more it, it requires more forensic you know expertise to piece together what's going on there than what you might have in the traditional bank. But isn't it true that the uh, the name, was it Satoshi Nakamura? Nakamoto. Nakamoto, who supposedly found, 
Nobody knows who that actually is. Nobody knows who that is. If you think about that from an intelligence operations standpoint, it's a bit like QAnon, where like there's supposedly a Q, but that's probably a bunch of people. Satoshi Nakamoto probably isn't just one person, but it's probably kind of a committee of folks that put together, uh, you know, this project. And there's you know different people with different guesses as to who that is. But that's almost just as it kind of was with QAnon. And like we explained in this dismantling QAnon program, it sort of doesn't matter who that was because it, you, what you really need to look at is what network of interest it actually serves and who's promoting it and, and you know, what the consequences are. And so that's really kind of what matters with, with cryptocurrency is like, what, what role does it fulfill in geopolitics? Right. And, you know, when you look at what you know, the folks in 1933 were obsessed about with the gold standard and, you know, trying to overthrow FDR. This is filling in that same geopolitical role. It's basically serving the role of gold only, you know, implemented on a, in a much more elegant way, honestly. And then people maybe don't understand. I'll briefly explain why Bitcoin is very similar to gold in that there's only, there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, right? So it's a constrained supply, similar to how the world's supply of, of gold is constrained. Um, you know, there's only so much and the rest of it that we don't yet have identified as a pain in the ass to get to. So it's, it maxes out at a certain point. Um, so, you know, it, it's very appealing. It, it's not, def, it's not inflationary. It, it's deflationary. You know, it, um, anybody that wants to, you know, put something into Bitcoin, you know, those holdings will remain the same over time. Um, so people say that it's a way to store value and to retain wealth and that kind of thing. And you know, as where, you know, if people, if people would complain that, you know, if you had a million dollars in cash in a bank account that wasn't paying a lot of interest, let's say it was paying, you know, 1% interest and the inflation rate was 5%, then you'd be losing, you know, 4% right. net per year. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of why Bitcoin fills that same uh, position as gold. And what you find is that, all of the same people that were big champions of gold back in the 30s and the 50s and the 80s are now champions of crypto for the same reasons. So that's why looking at this from a historical networks of influence kind of standpoint is so important. So you can see what the themes are and who's promoting what over the course of uh, several decades. Yes. So you mentioned something I that's new for me, talking about a massive like... Uh, Manhattan Project-esque between countries to, to tackle climate change and take on these oil, if I understood what you were saying correctly. Mm -hmm. I also know you've written about perhaps a very valuable thing from, as a mental health professional, a national service program that would be mm -hmm. mandatory for Americans to help serve other Americans Sure. Want to say a few words about that? Yeah. Please? So, you know, one of the things that we had to kind of do in, in understanding how all this worked was to come up with kind of a working model for how disinformation functions. Like, why is it that when I was studying disinformation, did it, did I need to understand cults to do it? <laughs> That's, mm -hmm. Let's start with that question. So, you know, basically what I, what we were finding was that people started to behave in very cultish ways. And, uh, you know, so then the question is like, well, how do people get that way? So that was where my consulting with you and Joe and, you know, other folks in this space has been very, very helpful because you start to understand that what happens when people join cults is they become isolated from their other networks, the networks that balance them, that keep them happy or that keep them uh, seeing, you know, keep them in it with a center. Help them view, to reality you know. test. And exactly. Yeah. Versus don't trust the media. They're the enemy of the people. Don't talk to your parents. They're, they're trying to control you. Right. So Information it's this idea control. of milieu control. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and um, so in looking at that, we, you know, we're able to kind of formulate a hypothesis that the way that disinformation does what it does is by destroying social bonds. So if somebody takes in an information payload that maybe makes them question whether or not, you know, the world is round or versus flat or whether vaccines work or whether climate change is real, they start to potentially become suspicious of other people in their network. They start to maybe cut off ties with them. They start to maybe develop more ties to parasocial entities, you know, such as celebrities or websites or whatever that make them feel more 
you know, aligned with their new beliefs and they start to veer further and further into these networks of influence that then separate them from the rest of the world. And what, what you also find is when you look at the political science side of this, um, I, I'm a student of uh, a researcher named Liliana Mason, who has identified that it's this lack of cross-cutting social ties that makes people more and more likely to condone political violence. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing, right? You know, like what you find on the sociology and, and, you know, psychology and cult studies side is the exact same thing that political science folks are finding. So the hypothesis is that if disinformation works by scrambling and and, uh, depleting social ties, um, then a way to combat disinformation and its effects is to rebuild social ties and yeah. or to, to, to build social ties that are so strong and or confounding that they can't be easily targeted by these kinds of weapons. So therefore, people won't do it as much because it's not as effective. Right. If you think about the United States right now, we have all of these really, really accessible divisions between race, between rich and poor, between geography, rural and, and urban. You know, there's a million different things that divide us. Yep. And so there, it's basically the country's going around with a giant kick me sign on its back. And, you know, countries like Russia and China are very happy to do that. And so the idea that I'm starting to promote and to think harder about is what can we do from a generational perspective? But even within a four to 10 year time frame, um, what could we do to build ties between people that would make these kinds of attacks less profitable, less useful? Yep. And so, you know, as you said, the idea of like national service, which, you know, some people think, oh, well, you know, that, does that mean military service and does it have to be mandatory? Uh, my thinking is more along the lines of like AmeriCorps, uh, which is, you know, a broader umbrella of service programs that can include conservation work or teaching or, you know, foreign service or what have you. But the idea being that we need to be intentional about building cross-cutting social ties between people of different backgrounds so that, you know, when we are, you know, existing as like the American population, we don't distrust other people just because they're different from us, just because they come from a different geography. Yep. And you get to know, you know, like, and this is something that we did, actually, if you think about it during World War II and, you know, our other military uh, engagements during the 20th century, you know, you look at, at Bob Dole, you know, who just died, Um you know, he uh, was somebody that served in World War II. Everybody that, that was of that generation developed, I think, a profound respect for the idea of America as being a diverse place of having a lot of different points of view of coming to trust people from different backgrounds because they had spent time in difficult situations with them, you know? Yep. And so, uh, you know, Right now, I think AmeriCorps can support something like 75,000 candidates per year. I'm not even sure that it does that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were to expand that to be 750,000 or 2 million or 5 million, and you don't necessarily have to make it mandatory, but imagine if you were taking 5 million new people a year over the course of five years, you know, you would be talking about something like 25 million people. Uh, who were getting exposed to a situation that was different from what they were, you know, accustomed to right now, you know, with our obsession with, you know, colleges and whatnot, which is totally fine. You know, we should still be sending people to colleges and and education. But if you think about what colleges actually do, they tend to sort people by socioeconomic class even further. So if if people want to go to like a brand name college, you know, they're ending up with people that more often than not are are like them in, in one way or another, you know? And we're not mixing. So if you were to do something that made it uh, a really good deal for young people uh, to spend maybe two years doing this kind of service before going into college or embarking on a career or doing whatever else they're going to do, I think it would have massively positive effects. And I think it would be well worth paying for out of the defense budget, um, you know, which is massive. And we spend... Mm -hmm tons of money on the defense budget to mitigate all the problems that come from us not doing stuff like this. Right. So there's a conversation that can be had there. And I think it's something we should explore. And I'd like to just say what I've been saying for 45 years, which is in my work, helping people get out of mind control cults, it's the family and friends, if they're educated and guided, are going to be the most influential 
to interact with cult members to help them to start thinking and asking questions, but with a respectful, curious, I'm ready to listen, help mm -hmm. me understand how you came to believe this. And uh, because my work says deep down inside, people don't like to be lied to or abused or exploited and controlled. Right. But my, I'll just add my two cents. We need to do a public health initiative to develop preventive education for young people, but everybody on how to protect yourself from undue influence online. Right. We need to train mental health professionals how to help people who are in the throes of it. We need systems to help people recover. And another project is just reaching out to ex-members like myself, and there are millions in America. Hey, let's destigmatize it. We do a, we're doing a hashtag I got out effort mm -hmm. to just say, yeah, I was in a controlling relationship for five years where I got cut off from my family or yeah, I, w I had, it was in a company that had a, a narcissistic boss, etc. cetera, so mm -hmm. to normalize it and to, um, to start. And, and I'll mention braver angels has been just trying to get, you know, people together in a room to listen to each other yep. and see that we have more in common than we have, uh, you know, opposite each other. Well, and I think the, the thing that unites, you know, all of the ideas that you were just talking about with what, what the approach that I've identified is, is that we are recognizing that this is a social problem at, at its core. It's, it's about how we're configured as a society, how we come together mm -hmm. as a people. And while on the one hand, you know, the, the initial reaction that most people arrive at when they think about this set of problems is that we need better education, we need better civics uh, you know, education. We need uh, better critical thinking. We need browser extensions that detect false information. All of this, and like, look, I, I, all of those things are fine, but they are dependent on us having a a civic body that is well balanced and well interconnected. Yep. And if we don't, like, it's a necessary condition to fix these social problems before any of those things will do anything. Unfortunately, yep. and you know, because part of the issue is you can try to educate people about, you know, quality information sources and uh, civics all day long. But if the messenger isn't trusted, like we see is happening in public schools right now around critical race theory and whatever else, then no, no information can flow across an untrusted connection. Yep. So we need to have trusted connections. Yeah. And uh, I'll add that we need to update the law for undue mm -hmm. influence. And that's what I did my doctoral work on was the judges and juries need to criminalize people and they and there are laws against trafficking sex and labor trafficking but these laws need to be expanded to protect anyone from victimizing other people and subverting their own religious freedom their own ability to choose um sure. and uh so that's another piece but um I just worry about corruption. You know, there's so many, so much corruption. I learned a week ago how much it was a hundred million dollars that Russia paid an American PR firm in DC over many years to advance their agenda. I imagine that's a drop in the bucket when you look at the big picture too. Yeah, but think, you know, we need an open society. We want freedom. We don't want authoritarianism, but we need laws to protect us from foreign negative actors, people who want to subvert our country mm -hmm. and our freedoms. Um, but it's, and I feel like a certain amount is just like overwhelming, distractive, you know, messaging on social media, where a lot of people, brilliant people are spending all their time doing video gaming, or binge watching yeah. movies instead of realizing, we need you in the real world, not a metaverse, like the real world needs us. Yep. Now and our children yeah, and our children's children. We need to have a long view. A lot of these bad actors have been taking a long view and planning. Yeah. No. They and they they have a pretty good idea what they're what they're after and why they're doing it. And you know, when you talk about the corruption, you know, one of the things that you realize is that you know, when you look at this from a network perspective. There are these networks of, you know, I would say the licit world, the legal world, the yeah. 
sort of institutionally oriented world. And then there's this kind of illicit world that, you know, is in competition with that. And right now that illicit world has a lot of primacy yeah. over the, the more legal universe. And, you know, that, that has to be kept in check and we don't have good mechanisms for doing that right now. Right. So we're wrapping up, but I, I want to put you on the spot and if, President Biden and Kamala Harris is listening in the January 6th committee and you have an elevator speech to say, drum roll. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the first thing I might do is just say, hey, you know, we should have been looking at this five years ago, but that's not their fault. Uh, you know, we are in a very much kind of a behind the eight ball situation right now where we have to figure out how to recover from, from a really, really tenuous, uh, difficult situation. And so I think, you know, really taking a hard look at cryptocurrencies is a good idea. Uh, I think that that is a bubble that needs to be popped. And I think there's some really relatively straightforward ways to do it involving there's a cryptocurrency called Tether which is providing a lot of kind of unnecessary leverage to the entire ecosystem that looks to be a bit of a, you know, pyramid scheme scam thing that can be probably dismantled. So that's good. I think enforcing, you know, the rule of law against all the people that appear to have been involved in January 6th would be Not very good in terms of- just the people breaking in, but the yeah, people the, inciting- the people at the top level that did all this. And I, I get that the wheels of justice need to move somewhat slowly and that that's by design, but I can't tell you how- you know, much, it would improve morale for people to be thrown some bones that, you know, our system does work and that it does so in a relatively timely fashion, because the idea that like these folks are just going to get away with this, I think really, really makes people uh, very, you know, sad to, to consider. And it really undermines faith in our overall system, which in turn can create a feedback loop that we don't want. Um, and so that I would say looking at the disinformation problem, not as a technology problem, but as a social engineering problem Great. and looking in, you know, these social connection, uh, ideas, investments in social capital, I think would be well worth making. And, um, yeah, you know, like do what we can to, to keep us out of, out of a global war, which is the other thing that seems to be brewing, uh, yeah. you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, I think people like Steve Bannon are itching for that kind of thing to start. And I, I think Isn't that, Michael Flynn also? Yeah, Steve Bannon, itching. Mike Flynn, Putin. Roger Stone. That whole network seems Peter to be Thiel. very willing to throw us into global conflict. Uh, and I think that that's an unspeakable hell that we don't want to get into. Yeah, so I'm going to so. add two more ideas because you've gotten my my brain stimulated. Yeah, yeah. Biden could create a cabinet level uh, position for someone who's in charge of understanding psychology and mental health, which this falls under. Well, I mean, it's, it's cognitive security of the population. You yes. Know? So that could be looking at these service programs. It could be looking at the stuff that you look at. But nobody is watching out for cognitive security from a cabinet yep. level perspective. And then I would add, I'd like to see the, the the committee have open hearings on the whole subject of, is there such a thing as brainwashing? Is there such a thing as hypnosis? Um, is it possible to make people commit acts of violence that are completely against their, their identity and their belief system uh, through the use of, of undue influence? Because I think the public needs to understand this stuff. Yeah, I think the public's understanding of how influence works is really, really poor. And we need to do a, a good job of helping to influence, you know, help people understand just, just how pervasive influence is and how it shapes our world. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave Troy. You're you. a good American. I will say you're just Doing spending <laughs> endless amount. Well, I, I, I mean, I feel I'm, I'm very ambivalent. I've been doing a lot of research on the tragedies wrought on indigenous populations by our, our ancestors here in America, not to mention black people enslaved and, sure. and other horrendous things. But the idea, the aspirational idea that uh, of our country, uh, I'm not willing to give up. I just, I really believe it's, we, we have a, a, a responsibility um, for the future. Because yep. otherwise, authoritarians are very happy to tell us what we can do, what we can't do, and use AI and 
and social media and whatever to control people's minds to be compliant to yep. their agenda. And, you know, this is just one of those moments where international fascism is, you know, sort of raising its head and trying to gain full primacy. And uh, we got to put the devil back in the hole. So. Yep. Thank you so much, Dave Troy. Continued success. I look forward to many future conversations Absolutely. with you. And uh, thanks again. All right. Thanks, Steve. Take Glad care. to be here. Bye. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website, freedomofmind.com. There you will find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend reading my books, Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. Thanks for listening. Thank you.